0: Okay,
1: let's continue our discussion with regard to this din of uh, separating out, eating meat and then, and then milk. So we've, uh, we've discussed quite a bit uh, what lies behind the various customs that exist. There's a certain amount of time that Chazal uh, decreed oh, yeah. that, needs to ex- that needs to exist between eating meat and milk. Whatever those times whatever those times are, um, you are essentially, uh, you, at first when you look at the whole discussion here, you're essentially saying that uh, the the ribonium came along and said it's going to be a lot of trouble I and mean, there could be a lot of mistakes that are made if you don't create some sort of a gap. And so therefore most of us feel that, uh, or understand that that really is the main idea behind the custom or the din of separating out uh, meat and milk however what's interesting is, is as follows and that is that besides the reason what we call the the general reason um, that we want to separate any uh, people from meat, making mistakes meat and milk etc but there's actually some technical details that need to be appreciated uh, and that is as follows first and foremost we have to uh, recall the story that exists in in Am Yisrael's uh, uh, experience in the in the desert, where they complained about not having meat, and of course Baruch then flew in the meat, and these these quails came in and they sat there for a while. Um, people went wild eating the meat, and eventually were punished because of that lack of faith. But forget the philosophy here. Yeah. What we are looking at is. A particular detail within that, within that story. And the Pasuk comes along and says that Amisel were so was so wild at their consumption of meat that the meat was still between their teeth. That's the expression that's used to describe what went on there. Uh, in other words, while the meat was yet between their teeth, they, they were punished. Uh, you know, that, that they, Hashem really hit them hard. Now, from a Halakhi point of view, what do we do with that phrase that uh, the Torah talks of, you know, in, 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 in Safer Bar where there's this concept of meat being between your teeth? Does that Pasuk have any bearing on how we understand um, meat pieces that remain in your teeth? Uh, at what point in time is that considered meat or not considered meat? So, let me just um, call your attention to page 43. Um, and this is uh, an intro to discussing some of the reasons why the certain certain people, certain poskim, claim that we need to uh, create a gap between the meat and dairy. And so, based on this uh, introduction, what we find is as follows um on page
0: 43 uh,
1: um what what you see here is as follows that the Rambam, um or, or let, let's start with the Gomorrah first and foremost uh the Rambam and the Gomorrah sort of dovetail here so there you see it in the se in in the second entry number 39 you know what is the status of Bas. What is the status? Is it considered meat or do you think that the, whatever you call it, the acid in the mouth is already somehow broken down meat and it's either disgusting and no one else would want to eat it after you've had it in your mouth for however long it is, uh, or, is it, or is it, yes, it is considered meat based on this pasuk which says that the Torah testified that while the meat was between their teeth, Akosh Baruch then came at them. But that phrase could be very impactful from a halachi point of view. And this is um this is how the, the Rambam is going to interpret the Gemara. So the Rambam says then in source number 38 Um Basar a person who first ate meat, you're not allow to eat dairy afterwards. Why? because of the potential problem where you actually have proper meat pieces that are stuck between your teeth. And, you know, you haven't been able to get rid of them, you know, just by rinsing, by rinsing your mouth. So the rambam basically tells you that the problem is, is that meat that sticks, that still sticks in your mouth between your teeth and you need like dental floss to get it out. So there, that particular, uh, those pieces, as far as the rambam is concerned, have the status of meat based on this Pasuk that the Gomorrah quotes, and the the those pieces of meat will not lose their status as meat until six hours have, have gone by. So if you if you ask the Rambam, you know, why is it that Chazal that made a decree that you have to separate, you have to wait between a meat meal and a milk meal? So we said bigadol in in general, because we want to circumvent any problems that might arise but but specifically you know where's the problem what is the problem so according to the random the problem is is that those pieces of meat that that remain in your mouth and stuck in your teeth those pieces of those pieces of meat are a uh, are considered meat and if you then would eat the milk and meat at the same time uh, or you know within six hours since until six hours have passed, those pieces of meat in your teeth are still have the status of meat. Then you are going to have basar b'cholav. You are going to eat meat and milk at the same at the same time. So that is the Rambam's uh, reason as to why this gezera. This is the specific problem. You want to create a gap between finishing a meat meal and starting a, a milk meal, so there won't be problems. Well, yes, the problem. This is the problem is because of the of the, the pieces of actual meat that that are still that may still be in the, you know, between, between your teeth. Now, Rashi uh, looks at it differently. And so the Savior brings it in, in source number 40. Rashi writes as follows to this comment in the Gemara of uh, Rav Ha'abra Yosef, Rav Gizda, Um, When he asked, when the Gemara asked, you know, what was the status of meat between your teeth? And he quotes the pasuk that said, Rashi interprets as follows. Rashi says, you have a look at, um, at, at the bottom of, uh, of page 43. So entry 40, Rashi says, because the nature of meat is that it's fatty. And when you eat that, you chew it and you swallow it, and the fatty residue clings to the to one's palate, one's mouth. And the taste remains there for a, yeah, an extended period of time. So, interestingly, is this debate or two different angles of coming at this problem, Rambam and Rashi. And depending on what opinion you're going to side with, um, you may have certain, as we call them, nafkaminas, certain differences um, between, between the way you approach this problem. If you approach, approach it like the Rambam or like Rashi, it'll yield a different result. So, yeah, the Sefer tells us, um, a number of practical or lucky ramifications would arise between these two reasons given. What about chewing meat without swallowing it? So yeah, you, we all. I think most of us have this minag that um, if you're giving meat to a baby uh, and you want to make sure that it, it can deal with it, so you would chew it on behalf of the baby. So now by chewing, you didn't have intention to eat supper. You know, you just were chewing the meat in order to give it to a baby. So the question now is, the minute you start to chew something, then the pieces of meat will be stuck in your mouth. And, and as far as the Rambam is concerned, that's the big problem here. And therefore, the minute you chew something, and there's a chance that the meat will be stuck, you have to wait uh, as if you're it. Whereas according to Rashi, you may be able to distinguish as follows and say, well, if I'm not eating it myself, if I'm not swallowing it, I'm just sort of chewing it lightly, how much taste is there? And so, yeah, the safer is saying, according to Rashid, you've seen on page 44 that one doesn't need to wait since one did not swallow, and the flavor, therefore, does not linger in one's mouth. You know, Um, I'm... uh, I'm a little bit um, I mean I'm just thinking this through. if somebody would ask you, you know how do you how do you get the flavor of the meat? I mean, you'd say you 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 chew it, you know the idea of swallowing it, I don't I, I, don't, I don't know that that should be that relevant that that should be that impactful. yeah. if you don't swallow, but you just chew the meat, what at what at what time is the swallowing? actually going to affect the fact that there's residue and taste in your mouth. I'm not sure about this, to be honest with you. I'm not sure if the swallowing is, 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 is the real issue, as opposed to somehow chewing it and getting out the, the fat and the residue. But nevertheless, maybe swallowing it does have, have, have something, has something to add here. In other words, what I'm asking is, is this really true? I understand that the Rambam and Rashi come at it differently. But I, I, you know, I sort of like feel that if you're chewing something, that's how you get out the. That's how you get the fat out. That's how you get the flavor out. And so if you chew it, you know, the Rambam's worried about the meat being stuck between your teeth, and Rashi's worried about the residue, the fat residue that's going to remain in your mouth. And 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 I I don't I don't know if you have a opinion on this. In other words, what do you say about
0: um, that was the first my
1: mother There you go. Okay, got it. Um, so I'm not sure if you agree with me on this. Just, I'm just bringing it up. But um, the way that this, the way that, uh, Safer has presented the, the, the difference between Rashi and the Rambam in this particular scenario, and it said that since one did not swallow, the flavor, and therefore, if you don't swallow it, the flavor doesn't linger in one's mouth. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that, that's, I would, I, I would try and find another way of describing it personally. No, okay. No, no. Yeah.
2: Oh, also, if you have milk and meat like in your stomach, it doesn't count as mixing them. Is that correct? If they both happen yeah, to it sounds be.
1: Like, yes, it sounds like once it goes into your stomach that the acids already break it down and and uh, sorry to gross you out but if you would if you would vomit it up you would see that nobody's really interested in that piece of meat
2: but then even more so, so if, you're if you're swallowing it you would assume then the issue has gone it's not in your mouth anymore so there's no mixing to be done no yeah,
1: so, so what do you think, do you think that you think that swallowing it is really is swallowing it causing there to be extra uh, fat and uh, residue in your mouth. That's what I'm saying. Here. To me, I don't know where why swallowing does that. Why would you have a leniency if you don't swallow? If you chew but you don't swallow, surely chewing it—that's the real. It I would assume Sorry, that yeah? swallowing
2: swallowing gets rid of it.
1: Yeah. So yeah, he has the exact opposite. Yeah. Right. According to the way that this safer is. Is telling us that we have to watch for that if you hold that the problem is like Rashi, that you are that you stuck with meat residue in your mouth. Um swallowing, I don't know what swallowing adds to that. You saying even more, you're saying not only does swallow not add, swallow gets rid of it. Maybe and, and
2: so, yeah. maybe it's because when we if you're just chewing it, like nobody has a meal with just chewing meat, it would be like a one-time thing. Like you ate, you chewed meat and then you realized, oh no, I don't want to eat this and spit it out. Or as you said, like, I don't know, give it to a baby, but you wouldn't eat a whole, once you're swallowing it, that means that you're that you're eating.
1: So do you think that swallowing it um, generates more fatty residue sticking in your palate? One the one? To,
2: one-to-one probably not. Like one time of chewing and swallowing versus one time of just chewing, it's probably the same, but maybe it's the assumption behind it that if you're chewing and swallowing, you're eating a meal versus if you're just chewing, it's probably just one or two bites.
1: Yes, so yeah, the fact that you, the fact that we are uh, being told to consider the different angles of Rashi and Rambam with regard to chewing meat for a baby, So if I chew the meat for a baby um, and then I don't swallow, do you think that by not swallowing it, I've I've really made a, a difference? I mean, I'm thinking to myself, if I chew it enough, I've already extracted the fatty residue and that's enough to stick in your palate. Unless you say to me, no, you're wrong by swallowing it, swallowing it, let's say, causes the meat and the fatty residue to remain that much longer in your mouth, takes it, takes it from the front teeth and puts it all the way back. And by going through that process all the way back, that creates the stickiness factor um, of the fat staying in the mouth. But if you were just to chew it in your front teeth, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't um, salivate over it. You just chew it and then give it. Maybe that's what they're trying to say over here. Yeah, and either way, the question is, if you chew, but don't swallow, you know, is there, is there are you flagship or not? So the Rambam would say, you're for sure fleshyic. I'm not even, I'm not talking about, the Rambam doesn't consider the impact of the residue. He talks about the meat between your teeth. But according to the way Rashi learns, he's worried, he, he takes into account what's actually left in your mouth, not the pieces. Not the be he's worried about he takes to the fact that you've actually processed the meat by swallowing it. And that extra little bit of time as the meat moves from being chewed to being swallowed, that's the way of saying that there's more coming out. Um, and 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 yes, you would not be flașic if you only if you only chewed it. That's what's I think that's what's coming out of the way they're writing it here. So the question is, example number one, which may be different based on how you view this issue of just of, of what the problem is, what the real issue is of, uh, of basah or, or waiting between a meat meal and, and a milk meal. So, yeah, point number two on the top of page 44, what do you do with meat that you find in your mouth after six hours? So, you know, we'll, I don't know, we'll, we'll have an afternoon barbecue or we'll, we'll, go for, we'll go for a wedding or something like that. And then, you know, you come back really late at night and you, you know, it's been more than six hours. You brush your teeth, you floss your teeth, and then you see there's meat there. So at what point in time are you still flashing? You know, is that meat that's there after six hours, you know, is that still meat? So according to the Rambam, no. The Rambam said clearly the way we interpret this idea of meat between your teeth, only until six hours. After six hours, the breakdown of the meat by the acids of the mouth have uh, rendered it, uh, call it paraph. There's there's no status of meat there. So if you find meat residue, you find meat pieces in your your teeth six hours after eating it, that's paraph. And uh, all you had to do was count six hours and that's it. You don't have to start counting six hours from now because the meat between your teeth after six hours loses its status. And yeah, according to the way the safer teaches us, but according to Rashi, it seems that it is still considered meat. Um, and now I'm wondering why that's true. Why why would it still be considered meat, according to Rashi? Are you saying that the meat that exists between your teeth is now still... Um, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't Rashi think it's also not meat? I mean, he just told us that the meat part you have to worry about is the fats that still remain in your mouth. But yeah, you've got a you've got a dead piece of meat in your mouth. It's already lost all its flavor. How would you say that? You know, another another interesting point to to contemplate. What the cipher wants to get out of this? But the next one, example number three. There really, uh, I feel there's a, a really a good solid example. If a person, the person. I,
2: I wanted to ask about the um, residue if you find after six hours, like when um, when a woman goes to the mikvah. I I thought it's like the minhag not to eat meat that day, so that you won't have anything like any sort of chatzitza But if you only like, but it should really just be from six hours. You could have meat for breakfast. No, well you know
1: is not a pro- chatzitza is all different halacha you know. But
2: but we're saying like after six hours there's no there's no meat left in our teeth there's not
1: meat but there's still a chatzitza. you can go to the mixture while you're you are it you have to worry about that point in other words the problem you're worrying about is a chatzitza. when i say it's doesn't have the status of meat that's one thing but it has the status of a chatzitza. it's a foreign body that that you may not want there okay so so, example number three is is is, is I think a, a concrete example that I that I can you know I just I can get my hands around. In other words, working with the opinions of both Rashi and the Rambam, eating the fat of meat or meat soup without meat pieces. So, if you have a nice you know hot meat broth that you filtered out all the, the vegetables and actual meat pieces. And so there's no, not, there's nothing really to chew, but the, but the, the soup is completely flaishek. Well, according to the Rambam, you wouldn't be flaishek; you wouldn't have to wait because there's no actual meat. Whereas according to Rashi, you can appreciate that there's, there's, there's a taste, there's a flavor, there's residue. Well, so, like,
0: there's a question on the chat. Uh, okay. let look.
1: When you say six hours, you mean that who wasn't in the shear last time? Six or six or three. You have to listen to the shear uh, what because there's arguments as to what that means, six hours. Six can mean six proper hours, it can mean into the sixth hour, it can mean three as you're depending on the minute. So what whatever minak you are working with, if you are um that Whatever you mean, like you're working with, that's what you—that's you thats you to ask yourself about about um, you know the story of finding meat between your teeth. Okay, so um, here we go with um, with this example. When you whenever you are chewing something and it's lingering in your mouth, if there are pieces that are in there, then that that creates a problem for the Rambam. Well, with Rashi, there's problems when the taste lingers. So this would be an interesting point here if you had this kind of soup. Anyway, this whole shira that we're talking about now for the last 20 minutes or so, comes crashing down with the last line, you know? What are you asking me for? The Quran and Shulchan say you've got to be strict for both reasons. So that's not very helpful, is it? So this argument between Rashi and the Ramam doesn't really help. I mean, yeah, okay, fine. It's, it's academic in the base of midrash. We can all have fun. But when we come out of there, we want to know what aloha is. If you want to act l'chaquila, you have to be mahmir for both reasons. You have to be strict in both directions. So even if you had that meat soup, even if you had that meat soup, and the Rambam would allow you not to consider yourself lasik, um we, we would be mahmir. We would be mahmir. It's interesting if this goes the other way around as well. So you remember we spoke about um, we spoke about um, cheese. So you know when I was telling you about that that really really strong cheese that you can get. So if you eat if you eat that very very strong cheese, um, and you have to wait you know six hours between that very strong cheese and and then eating eating meat. So, it'll be interesting. What well, what happens if somebody would just, if you, you know, you, if you were drinking something, you were drinking uh, hot chocolate, you just had meat. Let's say, so you just had you said milk. So, let's say, we know you don't have to wait between uh, meat um, between milk and meat. So, you can go straight from a milk meal into a meat meal, as long as you do quinoa and hadakah, you basically wash your hands, you wash your mouth, you wash your... So, you know, and you eat something. So, like, like, Shabbat morning, right? So, let's say, for, so, for, so, do you have to wash your hands if you had, uh, you know, if you had a glass, if you had a, glo- a milkshake, if you had, if you had like just chocolate milk, if you like had a dare, you know, you just drank it. So, there's no issue of kinu- the kino, um, hadacha, which might refer to your hands. You don't get anything on your hands when you, when you're drinking from a plastic bottle, let's say. Um, and would there be any residue in your mouth that you have to clean out before you go into that meat meal? You might argue, as some do, and they say, No, if there's, if there's nothing to chew, then nothing's sticking out there. There's, there's nothing to really clear out, just wash it out with water and you're done. And you know, so it's a similar kind of thing over here, you know. How anyway, so as far as meat, the meat soup is concerned, we 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 pretty much here, yeah. But um, you anyway, know, this is the interesting point over here um, that we, we have to be machmir, but there's still what to discuss when you when you um, you know when you don't have actual meat pieces there. You know, so here they, they give an example here. They quote a pitchei tshuva in the middle of page forty-four. Um, if one choose a piece of meat that consists of fat alone. So forget the health uh, scenarios here yeah, for the baby or just whatever you, although neither reason is applicable. You don't have meat. So if you suck marrow out of a bone, you don't have actual meat pieces. And I mean, you could argue this question about the flavor. You know, It's a fleshy something. It's a fleshy entity. And this would be part of the question. Do you have to be on such a, on such a scenario? Um, and then going back, you know, going, this is exactly what we're talking about with the baby. Look what he says over here. If a person chews cooked food for a child when there's only fat. So it says, according to everyone, you don't have to wait because there's no extended taste since one did not eat it. And it can't get stuck between one's teeth since it's not actual meat. Nevertheless, a prima gazing one needs to be stringent to wait six hours, since the, the sages did not make a distinction, and in order to not cause trouble and uh, say in this case yes, in this case no, and, and then all of a sudden the whole din will start to become uh, disrespected. You don't you don't make a difference. But this is the this is I would ask the same question on this prima Gaudium. What do you mean if you chew fat? Um, you straight away get the taste in your mouth and, and the fat remains in your mouth so i don't understand what it, what they mean when they say you didn't eat it i mean you still got the residue there you might not have the pieces like the rum but you still have the residue you anyway, know maybe it, maybe if you eat it with your front part of your teeth you're just chewing it for your for your baby as it, it doesn't get you know to the the back of your mouth and go down to to create the trouble but i'm still I'm still in my mind trying to work that out. So um look at the safer of rights. If one tasted the meat without chewing it at all and then spat it out. So you've got no chewing so there's no actual meat between your teeth. And you you didn't you didn't allow it to, to linger there long enough to create a taste issue a taste issue, a residue issue you wouldn't be flashing. So this this would be um this would be something that you might be able to relate to if you if you're preparing a, a meat meal, from what say from what say your keeper. I'm not I'm not sure if uh, you know uh, the South Africans have a really you know traditional South Africans have a minute, you know breaking the fast. It's like a whole spiel. There. It's not just a okay you know a little cup of coffee with a bit of babka and then you just crash, you know. The, the traditional South Africans, it's like a party of, a party of night. It's a Q Mitzvah, Kamo, to have a feast after, after Yom Kippur. So let's say, you know, I don't know, for argument's sake, after any fast day, let's take any fast day. So, you know, besides Tisha uh, B'Av, and, you know, after Shivazam Atamu, Asara Batavet, some Gedalia, Tani you know, time system might be an issue until you hit the Magilla. but you're busy cooking for everybody. So you're cooking for everybody. You think to yourself, okay, how much salt did I throw in? Whoops, I made a mistake. It needs more salt, whatever it is. So you say, okay, let me taste. And you have a little taste and you uh, you you know you then spit it out. You don't swallow it. Number one, it's a fast taste. You don't want to do that. Number two, you just want to, you just want to cook for everybody. So maybe this is where the din is really important. That if somebody tasted the meat, to find out how good the meat is. Do you need to add more spice or not? But, but you didn't chew it and then you spat it out. Then according to this way of thinking, you might not even, you know, you, 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 might not have a problem. You won't be fleshy. By tasting it, done. You, you're not flashy So this is uh again, this is the interesting part over here as to where, as to where this goes. Now, there's, a, there's a, a, a well-known shiloh which Ramosha Feinstein tackles, and you can see it here on page 45. So the, the Ramosha has a has has is asked a particular shiloh with regard to vitamins. So here yeah, you, have, you have you have vitamins, and in the, in the in the complex of the vitamins, you've got some sort of meat ingredient. So yeah, already this din takes a lot of shape. here. Ramosha holds it. You don't have to, you're not because this is classic, right? Uh, and it doesn't even violate the MINA. And therefore, this is what they call law plug, means that you don't, law plug is you don't differentiate. So you have a whole, whole bunch of uh, variables that are all the same. And even though there might be a technical detail for variable, the, the next variable that might be, might be a reason not to be flashic, law plug, we don't argue, we don't distinguish. So yeah. Rav says there's not even this concept called a loplug, because um, not distinguishing, you know, in other words, you, you, you know, this whole scenario of, of a vitamin pull was not familiar to Chazal to and the Gemara. And there's no pieces of meat, and there's vadai no taste. So both Rashi and the Rambam are, are very happy. There's no problem over there. So this is, a, this is what Ramosha was asked. Are you able to eat milk after swallowing a, a, a fleshy vitamin? So he says, none of the reasons apply. Um, even that you would endanger the um, but basically, he says you, you don't have a problem with that, so you wouldn't be it. You know, you're not in violation of the bylaw, and and uh, and there's no problem whatsoever. So, um, yeah, you know, but if you if you start to take the vitamin pull, you know, and you do it in such a way, I don't know, you've got a gas, and you don't, don't just swallow it. You 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 chomp it. Um, you know, you eat it. Um, that you know, that's interesting as to what would happen over there. You know, but since most people just eat it, uh, swallow it, then there's no issue. It says in in the last paragraph there. You know, but um, if one were to deviate from the normal way of the world and chew the vitamin, still, even in this case, this would still not prohibit it. For regarding vitamins, there's no prohibition. Hazal weren't aware of this uh, of this invention. And therefore, there's no established custom. And since they didn't exist until the last few years, and therefore it's not appropriate to, to, add this, uh, to add this concept of vitamins to what is not uh to, to, to becoming flashy. It's interesting that Ramon Shafant in general, this this methodological approach, this swara, this logic that he uses, uh, you may be familiar with this, but he uses it in in many different areas. So when when we uh, when we discuss, for example, the the challenging minag of, of kidney art on Pesach, that you don't, we Ashkenazim, mainstream Ashkenazium, don't uh, you know, we aren't allowed to benefit from you know direct use of, of kidney art. So any type of legume or anything that looks like uh, you know anything that would a legume, we, you know we, we don't we don't use it. But but what happens if you find a legume, you find quinoa, that is that's a new invention that Hazal didn't know about but at the same time, it's actually a proper example of quinoa. So you may be familiar with this that you know people who enjoy quinoa or feel it as a very healthy alternative to to rice, you know So I mean, kit, uh, quinoa is something, it's a new discovery, it's a new grain. It, it wasn't, uh, you know, you, you didn't get quinoa in the, in, the, in the middle of Minsk or Pinsk, you know, it wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't there. So, because quinoa is new, you know, would you say, hey, listen, you can stake quinoa and you can, make a, you can make bread out of that thing? Maybe we should be, maybe we should consider creating a, a gezeira and, and saying, listen, you know, if you're worried about, you know, making things, turning things into flour, you know, worry about, worry about that. You know, but so has, or this kind of swara is applied, you know, to, to quinoa. Since kazal never knew about it, we're not adding any more khumras. We're just, we're just leaving it alone. Um, so this kind of approach is, um, you know, this is... Uh, this is the same kind of swara that Ramoshe writes over here. If it's not known to Hazal, it's a new it's a new discovery, then we're not going to just be so quick to say, you know, if it looks like a duck, it is a duck. You know, sometimes it can look like it, but it's not going to be it. So that was his swara. Others, others would argue with Ramoshe. And, uh, and they would say, no, if it looks like a duck, it's a duck. And therefore, you know, what would people say about potatoes? I mean, you know... Um, Potato flour. Without potato flour, we really, really stuck. Um, but there's, you know, for rights, nobody asked potatoes. It wasn't the minak. Somehow it didn't. It wasn't seen at the time as being something which, for most of us, really helps. If you were going to knock out potato flour, also, you know, it's, it's really like limiting the Pesach menu here. Anyway, I'm just showing you that by bringing up the Pesach example that. Ramosha's logic, is used it a couple of times. That if there's a new custom in town, if something arrived on the scene much later, you would not automatically say, ah, oh, it looks similar. So we should we don't add to the gazeros of, of Hazal. We're quite pedantic, says Ramosha, not to uh, not to do that. So that gives that gives rise to leniencies often when, when discussing these things. So here too, the pull, the vitamins, you know, it wasn't incorporated into the into the discussion of hazal. And therefore, even though you may have some question about it, to be chew that vitamin, um, he paskins that it wasn't a, it wasn't an issue. So I just saw Avital's question, you know, when feeding a baby. So if you put meat to your lips to see if it's a good temperature, no, so you've got no flavor and you've got no anything between your teeth. So you'd you, you know, you'd be you'd be um, you know, green to go. You wouldn't you wouldn't be fleshy Okay, so that's the, that's this particular piece over here. Um, and, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so again, just to summarize, what's important to realize is that the, the so-called logical ideas justifying this custom or this din as, as to how to separate between milk and meat. It's important to know it because some scenarios can come up and, and, you know, we'd say, be would and whether like Rashi, whether like Rambam, just be Mahmi. But Bidhi ever if you're in a situation where you're sort of stuck, then already it makes a difference as to, you know, as to as to what's going on behind behind the scenes. Now, when we talk about, you know, making a gazera on something that looks like the original case study, even though it's different, and yet we get very, we get very nervous when things look the same. This is one of the biggest issues now that we need to discuss and it's going to become uh, the the discussion of the future with regard to um, to meet and this is a this is this little piece at the end of um, this little note at the end at the bottom of page 45 and it takes us to an essay which we we should just you know in your we'll just go through the basics of it but you should try and take the opportunity to go through it if you if you have the book so they're here for further even even means for further in-depth discussion concerning whether cultured stem cell meat has the status of meat and whether it's considered non-kosher if it comes from a non-kosher animal. So yeah, you're gonna you're running into all of this stuff. Yeah, number one, you've got to work out what the nature of this thing is. Number two, should we make a gezira because it looks it looks like meat? So if it looks like meat and tastes like meat, it's meat. Or maybe you say no. Maybe you say, look, you know, after a certain amount of time when the when the world has gotten used to, you know, this uh, stem cell meat, you know, we can understand in the beginning, just like it was with the uh, power of milk. In the early days, I mean, you know, in the early years where you had this power of milk, people were a little confused. And, and, and you know, the, the, the post came in, the journal right that... Almond milk existed um quite a while before we got onto it, but if you were going to use almond milk, you needed to leave some of the almonds actually floating in the milk, so that somebody who would look into this jug of milk would see that there are these almonds floating there and realize, ah oh, okay, this is almond milk, otherwise it looked exactly the same so this is you know this is the same question over here, you know. When, when the fancy invention of power of milk came up it took a couple of years until everybody got used to it you know the, uh, you know I remember even as a kid um when you went to a a, mitzvah or a wedding um you know back back in the you know in the 80s when I was going to these things and you were you were served a, a meat meal and they gave you tea and coffee with this with this with this that have a sign there on the table that have a sign saying you know don't, don't 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 uh don't have a cadenza over here you know this is power of milk and then leave the sachet there you know on the on the table for you to see so maybe what would happen is the same thing with with this stem cell meat if you were going to hold that you know if you hold that this meat is par of i mean it's a big discussion but let's say you hold it's part of but it, but it looks like meat so maybe we should treat it that way so this is the you know this is the story so now nobody blinks an eye at somebody having meat after a fleshic milk, milk after a fleshic milk, because I assume it's part of it's part of milk. But yeah, if you see somebody, Mamash, um, eating meat, you know, and then drinking milk, you know, you say, oh, well, the milk is mulchic. I can see it comes from dairy farmers kind of thing, or whatever it is, or, or Yumi's, if you follow Israel. So, and, but meat, the meat is coming from uh, some laboratory. You know, at what at point, what in, point time, in time, uh, you uh, know, would you say that this is uh, that this is going to be acceptable by everybody? Anyway, so you know, ask us to to um, to go to page fifty five. So, if you can uh, make your way there, um, we can start to see some of the points that are mentioned there. So, this essay on page fifty five is uh, is written by uh, by uh by kenigsberg Joel kenigsberg and uh, he um he joined this collel that produced these books and uh he graduated from there and he wrote uh, a thesis i think this might have been his phd i think he wrote a thesis on this particular story you know what's going to happen with meat in the future so yeah he gives us some information um I'm not sure how I forgot to uh, look when this book was published. You, you can have a look at the at the front cover as to what year the book was published, and how old this essay is. And then already, even if it's a couple of years old, um, things might have just advanced as well. Anyhow, let's just uh, let's just have a look here. Um, apparently, the person that we can thank for. Laboratory-generated meat is this Dutch scientist Mark Post. He apparently is the mechader. He's the he's the innovator of this. So, it's 2013 apparently, when um, you know the first the first kosher cheeseburger could be considered. And the question is, how? What, what do we do with this? Can we produce par of meat? So, he writes a second paragraph at the time. The discussion was purely speculative. The cost of the burger had been an astronomical, $330,000. And the entire event had been somewhat of a media stunt. And then you can have the, the Google search to the, the article. However, six years later, okay, so he's writing in 2019. Many entrepreneurs, investors, everybody's going, going to this lab, growing meat, and they want to know when it's coming. So, yeah, December 2018, um, this article is, uh, you know, was, was already becoming a scientific phenomenon, which everybody, everybody had to work with. And, um, and, and, you know, we just have to deal with the cost and we could bring it down and, and, and make it work. So the article continues to, 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 to educate us as to how this thing, you know, how, how does it work? And, of course, the, the benefits are unbelievable, right? um bottom line is the whole meat industry which is you know such a big question and as how good it is this becomes almost a a mute story so um but we have to understand how this meat is produced and what is the status of the meat coming out of the stem cells so okay let's have a look and see what uh what what he says to us um so just towards the, the bottom of the right-hand column of page 55, so he writes there that at present, knowing all the details as far as the is concerned and how the actual reality works, this is difficult for two reasons. First, much of the method behind the development is being closely guarded by the companies involved as they race to be the first to market the new product. Second, much of the exact specification of how the final product well, look, it's still unknown to the companies themselves. Okay, so, you know, there's a lot that's going on, but we've got to understand how they make this meet. Okay, so on to page 56. He tells us, how is it made? So he says like this. The Gemara tells us that uh, Vama Rav, Rav came, came along and didn't Rav say, Shwana Asa I spent 18 months watching a, a, a shepherd, a professional shepherd, watching this shepherd deal with with meat to work out and learn exactly what was considered a blemish, which would which would be permanent, and something which is which is uh, temporary. So he he spent the time he put in his time to know exactly you know, what, uh, what was needed. And so the Rov is just, of Kenningsberg is just bringing this as an example. Before we begin our lucky discussion, we need to spend a lot of time understanding the actual technology involved. Um, and at the time that he writes this article, not, you know, there's not that much that was accessible to him. But he says as follows. Firstly, stem cells are extracted from an animal. Different types of stem cells exist and there are advantages and disadvantages to using the various types. What is common to all stem cells is that they have an enormous potential for proliferation. So what begins as a handful of cells will eventually become millions or billions. For the hamburger mentioned at the beginning of this essay, cells by the name of myestellites, uh my, myosatellites, sorry, were used. Adult stem cells found in muscle tissue, that's what they are, myosatellites. Okay, so these stem cells are in the actual muscle tissue. And luckily, this is a crucial point, as it means that the cells originated in the muscle fiber of the animal. They began as edible meat. As we will see later on, cells that originate from other parts of an animal that may not be classified as meaty or even edible may lead to a different conclusion. So once the cells have been extracted, they are placed in a growth medium. This is a liquid solution that provides all the nutrients the cells need in order to multiply. Once a sufficient quantity of cells has been produced, the medium is replaced so that the cells cease multiplying and begin to differentiate. To join together and to develop into primitive muscle fibers that ultimately form the basis for a juicy hamburger. And not all companies are using identical methods. Some are producing a co-culture of different types of cells that form a 3D structure, and rather than isolated strands that would need to be mixed together. Finally, flavorants, colorants, and binding agents may be added, but this is not our sugar. Okay, different from what we normally know. So let's have a look at what unconventional meat is. As with many modern questions about our technology, the first and perhaps most challenging question is where to look for a precedent for this complex matter? As we are dealing with a new invention that could not have been fathomed even just a few years ago, we lack a clear and defining precedent. Among the Talmud and commentaries of the Rishonim, there is certainly no clear cut case which resembles our question exactly. However, there is a source that deals explicitly with the case of meat procured in an unconventional manner. The Gomorrah in Sanhedrin discusses the fact that before the time of Noah, mankind was not sanctioned to kill animals and eat them for food. This statement of fact is then challenged with another that in Gan Eden, was fed meat by the ministering angels. The Gemara recounts that this was not ordinary meat, but rather meat that fell from heaven. So the Gomorrah then tells the following story. The Gomorrah asks, is there such a thing as meat that descends from heaven? More answers. Yes, it's like this incident. He Rabbi was walking along the way and encountered those lions that were roaring at him and intending to eat him. He said, quotes a pasuk from Tehillim." So he says, "Hakfirim La So he says the the young lions roar after their their prey, and uh, and and they and they deserve to receive food. So two thighs of an animal descended from heaven for him. The lions ate some, ate one of these stars, and they left the other one. He took it and entered the study hall and inquired about it. Is this thigh a kosher item or non-kosher item? So the Chazal said to him, it's kosher. You know, as a non-kosher item does not descend from Shammayim. There's another example which is also known to us, that uh, there are certain Mephoshim on um on Chumash, uh, when they talk about Avram Avinu feeding the malachim who came who came to visit him after the bris. And uh, you know, he took uh, milk and butter, you know, and he added it to the Venabakar, he had he had meat there as well. So, what is Avram Avinu doing um with the meat and milk story? So some suggest that. He actually made the cow. He used certain Kabbalistic incantations and he miraculously found a cow. Now, a cow that is a miracle cow, you know, that you using whatever powers in the world there are. Um, are those kind of cows, are they mulchik of philagik, kosher or treif? So as far as Abba was concerned, one thing was important, say, many of the Kabbalists, the Malbim as well, that, um, that, you know, meat or cow that is formed by uh, Kabbalistic techniques with the Sefi Yitzhira is parav. Okay, so you have very creative midrashim, you know, talking about producing meat or what looks like meat and taka it's parav. And so what, what happened for us as well now? You can, you can make something, it can look like meat, but it might be, be parav. Anyway, there's a Rav that he quotes here from a Torah journal called Tukumin, and uh, he writes as follows. We're at the bottom of page 57, right-hand column. Stem cell meat created in a lab is not miraculous. However, it is certainly not meat produced in a conventional way in which all animals were created. This is a new reality of a creation which came about through human intervention and should be compared to meat created through the sacred Yitzhira. And this would therefore be another reason to permit consumption of cloned meat, even if the original cell was taken from a non-kosher animal. So is this Giddush, uh, you know, accepted by everybody? So he writes here, top of page 58, however, it seems that the analogy falls short. As of Yaakov Ariel and others have argued, the process in question is not in any way miraculous or supernatural. It is simply a newfound technology that science has allowed. Indeed, the entire aim of the process is to mimic the natural growth process, which takes place inside the body of the animal, as closely as possible in a laboratory setting. Furthermore, if such technology were to become widespread and emerge as a conventional form of reproduction, as many have predicted, the argument that we are dealing with an unusual method would no longer be valid. Aside from the above, many have rejected the comparison to this particular source altogether. The piece of Gomorrah is not allahic in nature, and many authorities of the opinion that the practical allahic rulings cannot rest on such sources. Difficult to and based on a medrash, basically. It is only because of the completely novel nature of the problem that Poskim have invoked such a passage as a source for discussion. Nonetheless, it seems far more appropriate to go back to traditional halakhic principles of Kashrut and begin our analysis from, from there. Okay, so... Um, I think I'm going to leave this to you for some homework. So if you have an opportunity, so we don't um, get bogged down completely, but we'll read through this particular essay. and then next week we will summarize at least what uh, Rabbi Kenningsberg leaves us with. At the same time, we'll also there's also a summary, which are if you go back a few pages to uh, to page fifty two. There you will see a summary of, of all of our discussions uh, that we've had to date, also yeah. worthwhile going through and see if you are able to identify um, as the summary is going what we have, what we've learned through. So, uh, okay, so we'll meet next time to discuss the, the laboratory meet and, and the conclusions that are up to date. If people do some further research, it's also great. Um, and we'll, uh, and then move on to, We'll summarise and move on, possibly to the the next section. Okay, so I wish you a good evening. And uh,
0: can, I, can I just ask you a quick question? Like, yeah. Sort of it's, it's not really a question, but is there any like Torah approach to where the lab-grown diamonds have the status of ordinary diamonds?
1: Uh, that's interesting. I would have to tell you, I'm ignorant about this. So what you so you? And I know. I've seen it actually. Those artificial. Precious stones, right? They make artificial ones. What are you talking
0: about? Big diamonds, but they just created in a laboratory, kind of the way the meat is.
1: Yeah, Jesus that's interesting.
0: They, they, they say you cannot tell the difference unless you've got a, even as an expert, unless you've really got the right machinery, like right to tell the difference. But they... With
1: a loop, with a loop you can't find any anything?
0: Apparently not. No, you need something more specialized to be able to tell the difference between a proper lab, grown, good lab-grown diamond.
1: Wow, actually no, wow, I didn't know that they do it with diamonds.
0: Anyway, and the other no, one, I
1: don't know, wow. I, I would just say one thing that'd be interesting, and that is that maybe the end result will be ironic, and that is that if you want a real diamond, you have to find a fault in it. Right. Because you know, because of their ones, it will be too perfect. They won't make them with a, a fault, they won't make them with the same.
0: I think there are different grades of the lab-grown ones. Oh, really? They are, yeah. yeah, think so. yeah. yeah. The whole industry could fall on its face. Well, apparently it was about to, and De Beers stepped in, apparently, and they've sort of taken over the, you know, set standards and got like right. the way right. the diamonds have done it with the lab-grown, yeah, the synthetic know. diamond as well. I don't know much
1: about but that at all.
0: Yeah. And just uh, the other thing is, I had an opportunity to ask Robertson Kimchi. Ah, uh, yes. About the, the one hour Minhagen in Holland, whether it had anything to do, did she think, with the prevalence of cheese in their lifestyle? Yeah. She didn't think that had any relevance. <laughs> she wasn't impressed.
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, she didn't. Okay, <laughs> that's all right, fine. <laughs> so, what did she think it came from? Why did that keila Dafka adopt the one hour?
0: she didn't she didn't for a reason she no. just didn't think it was because they were so attached to their cheese and because it was so like part of their
1: well, they, but they weren't eat, uh, they weren't eat so didn't like it. okay interesting mm. all right anyway so we we still find we should still find out why Dafka that community stuck with it mm. yeah. But, yeah. look what we what we did see which was important to know and that is that. That the you know the primary Ashkenazi opinion until the days of the Ramah, you know, the main opinion was one hour, you know. that that was that was it. So one hour was everybody. And, yeah. And then on, you know, um, That
0: was it. That's that's just in the conversation. That's just what they brought, yeah. the Ramah. The Rama says clearly that's Ashkenazi Menhag finished. So
1: Yeah, yeah. Except yeah. For the only says okay, it's better not to.
0: Oh. I tried to add that, but they said no. He, he said no. That that was the shach. I knew it wasn't because I just looked at it. But <laughs> yeah.
1: okay, no worries. <laughs> yeah, This idea that the Ramaz says it is not, uh, you know, is not that well known.
0: Interesting. Mm. Yeah.
2: Are we going to go back to the two other sections about children waiting, and if you aren't sure about how much time passed?
1: Yeah, I'll look at what we missed out now. I'll look at where we, we got up to. But yeah, okay, fine. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much. Can I just ask, do, do you have any more copies of the book available? Um, I actually don't know. I don't think... So. Oh, look, let me not guess. When I get home, I'll have a look. I may, we may have one left. Okay. So, um, yeah, but I can order one for you. Just a matter of getting it on time. I mean, they uh, they super quick from Amazon, so okay. no worries. Okay, shkoyach.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Lale. Thanks a so lot. Okay,
0: cheers. Safe travel. Bye. <laughs>